Welcome um, everyone to the launch of One Century After Tind. This is a special issue of Ethnic Studies Review that was edited by me, Linda Varghese, and Sonia Munshi. The issue is currently available on the Ethnic Studies Review website, and it's currently, um, all the articles are free, so it's not behind a paywall. So we're delighted to host this panel discussion with Mizue Ezeki, Kirisei Liata, and Prachi Patankar. Uh, but before we move to our panel discussion, we wanted to speak briefly about the impetus for the issue and the approach that Sonia and I took. So in putting this collection together, we took the 100th anniversary of the Supreme Court case, the United States versus Bhagat Singh Tind, as an opportunity to revisit the case itself, as well as open up broader questions regarding migration, citizenship, caste, racialization, and naturalization as sites of inquiry that illuminate the dynamics of empire, colonization, and nation building. As South Asian Americanists, we have used the case text in our classrooms and in our own research within the broader field of Asian American studies. And through these engagements, we noticed the ways that the case had become a flashpoint for multiple analyses of South Asian racialization in the United States. Um, and more importantly, we kind of noticed this like shift uh, in the arc of how the case is understood and what it signifies about South Asian American history, solidarities, and belonging. As many of you know, TIND is one of the many judicial and executive acts, including the Page Law passed in 1875, the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, the Immigration Act of 1917, and Ozawa, Ozawa versus the United States 1922. Um, these acts that have long been understood as legal mechanisms that have placed Asians outside the U.S. nation. In this particular line lineage, the case is positioned as evidence of South Asian American exclusion, um, in the contemporary moment, however, we um, have seen how the case has also been positioned as evidence of South Asian American progress and eventual triumph over the structural hurdles that these communities have faced in the U.S. And then at other times, also, it is seen as indicative of complicity with whiteness and caste oppression, um, in part due to Tin's legal claim that as a, quote, high caste Hindu of full Indian blood born at Amritsar, Punjab, India, end quote, he was a quote, white person within the meaning of Section 2169 Revised Statutes, end quote, of the 1870 Naturalization Act, a claim that leveraged racist ideologies rooted in anti-Black and settler colonial logics, as well as casteist ideologies rooted in Brahminical supremacy. Um, as Asian American Studies scholars, we are interested in the ways that the Tind case continues to circulate, how these interpretations um, how the interpretations of the case both persist and are reconstituted through political and social dynamics in, this, in South Asian American communities that have largely been formed in the almost 60 years since the 1965 Heart Cellar Act was passed. Holding this multiplicity of meanings, we approached um, this special issue one century after, after Tind as an opportunity to illustrate the varying legacies of the case, the heterogeneities of South Asian American communities, and our uneven locations with respect to legal and social citizenship, past and present. The special issue includes pieces that are grounded in different forms of scholarly inquiry, disciplinary approaches, uh, methodologies, and intellectual and creative frameworks. We offer this collection as a contribution to generate thinking and learning about the case, its themes, and ongoing questions that it provokes. So just kind of in that spirit of revisiting the case, building off of the case, and 
a lot of the meanings that swirl around it, we wanted to use the launch to actually continue the conversation and extend discussions contained in the issue. So uh, to this end, we invited our three speakers today to deepen and expand our engagement with TIND by picking up on themes and topics in the issue, specifically the racialized citizenship debates in the early 20th century that were part of US state making, historical and contemporary criminalization of migration, migrants, and borders, and caste in the South Asian diaspora. Our first speaker will be Kiri Sayaliata, sorry, Kiri, an assistant professor in American studies at McAllister College. She earned her PhD and MA in American studies from the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, and her BA in American studies from McAllister College. She was a UC President's postdoctoral fellow in Asian American studies at UCLA, and she's working on a book project entitled The Making of Samoa America, which examines the formation of American Samoa as a territory and attending U.S. citizenship debates in the early 20th century. After Kiri, Mizue Ezeki will speak. Mizue is the executive director and founder of the Surveillance Resistance Lab, a think and act tank that builds networks of collaboration to make the threat of surveillance at the nexus of state and corporate power visible. For nearly 20 years, she has focused on ending the injustices at the intersection of criminal and migration control systems. Mizuri was a senior advisor at the Immigrant Defense Project and the founder of the Surveillance Tech and Immigration Project. She is a co-editor of the forthcoming collection, Resisting Borders and Technologies of Violence from Haymarket Books, and her photographic work appears in Dying to Live, a story of U.S. immigration in the age of global apartheid and policing the planet, why the policing crisis led to Black Lives Matter. And our discussion, our panel discussion, will close with Prachi Patankar, an anti-caste and feminist writer, an activist who was born in rural Maharashtra, India. Over two decades in New York, she's been involved in social movements that link the local, local and the global, including police brutality and war, migration and militarization, race and caste, women of color feminism, and global gender justice. Her work has been published by Al Jazeera, The Guardian, Jadalia, Jacobin Magazine, and several other publications. Thank you, Linda. And so um, just for everyone to uh, uh, be prepared, our format today is that each panelist will present for about 10 minutes, and then we'll have time afterwards to speak with each other and with all of you um, through a Q&A that will open up at the end of their presentations. Um, Linda and I will be keeping an eye on the chat, so please feel free to drop questions in as the panelists are speaking, and then when we um, have get to the Q&A, we'll, we'll revisit any questions or visit any questions that have been posed while they've been speaking. Um, and so I'll turn it over now to Kiri. So, Telofalaba, uh, my name is Kiri Satinas Eliata. I go by Kiri. I am an assistant professor in American studies at McAllister College, and I want to start off with an acknowledgement. So first, many thanks to the folks behind the scenes organizing the talk and bringing us here today, and many thanks to Linda and Sonia um, for the invitation, and many congratulations to them and the amazing authors on this special issue. Um, and <laughs> um, I also want to thank thank folks for being in conversation with us virtually this afternoon. Our hearts and our spirits have been 
heavy for almost four weeks now as the horror of this latest siege has continued to unfold in Gaza and in Palestine. And we're grateful for you all to be with us and be in community to hear where our work is and um, what we're working on, even when our minds and our hearts are are elsewhere, you know. Um, so before I offer a small snapshot of the work I do and sketch some connections to these broader conversations around the centennial of Tind and um, its many legacies, as well as in particular thorny questions around race, citizenship, U.S. belonging, I want to offer a land acknowledgement. So I am zooming to you all from McAllister College, which is located in St. Paul, Minnesota, on the ancestral and contemporary homelands of the Dakota Oyate. Um, the Dakota were and continue to be violently displaced through ongoing structures of settler colonialism. And I offer this land acknowledgement in support of their efforts towards land back as the original stewards of this place and to honor the people, their ancestors, their descendants, as well as the land and the waters that surround us. Um, so <clears throat> I'm here to talk about U.S. citizenship debates um, in the U.S. territories, but more specifically thinking about American Samoa, which is where my work, um, you know, where my family and where, um, where also my, my, um, my work is situated. Um, and I also teach about um, uh, TIND as well as other citizenship acts. So being located in Pacific studies, as well as thinking about and engaged with um, the legal imaginary and mapping of U.S. territories means that I often toggle between many different types of citizenship acts. Um, so namely the insular cases in 1900, 1901, um, as well as um, some smaller um, and major Supreme Court cases um, from the late 19th century into the early 20th century. That's where the heart of my book project is, The Making of Samoa Amalika, as well as um, the teaching that I do. So again, being situated in Pacific Studies, I'm moving often between um, many different registers. Again, U.S. Empire and Territorialization, as well as Indigenous Studies. So I also am thinking about um, the centennial of the 1924 um, Snyder Act around American Indian citizenship. So this this moment is actually really um, <clears throat> pivotal in us reflecting on um, these major debates around um, inclusion and racialization and the geography and imaginary of the United States in the 1920s and its legacies today. Um, and so with that, um, I'm going to kind of turn to this 2015 episode um, from the HBO series Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, um, uh, entitled U.S. Territories. And in this usual kind of satirical styling of the host, John Oliver tackles the legal quagmire of U.S. territorial law um, through an expose on voting rights. And this main segment, the main segment opens with an acknowledgement of the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act. And then the show kind of pivots from a discussion of increasing voter restrictions across state legislatures to discussing lesser known sets of laws based on geography, the U.S. territories. So over the course of this segment, 
Oliver covers familiar ground within the framework of civil rights denial in, um, excuse me, <coughs> citizenship cases, um, but also very citizenship cases within the context of U.S. territories. He cites the Supreme Court rulings, which created the quote-unquote unincorporated territory, commonly referred to as the insular cases, and then veers to a discussion of patriotism and militarism in the territories. So how can the U.S. deny voting rights in federal elections to areas of historic and increasing military presence? And how is it possible for people with the highest enlistment rates per capita to not have U.S. citizenship or be able to vote for the commander-in-chief? And how is the two-tiered geographies of the insular cases, um, uh, which are, you know, temp were um, envisioned as temporary measures of separatism still in place? And so this narrative proffered by the U.S. Territories episodes, episode bears a striking parallel to the arguments made by Neil Ware, who is a civil rights attorney who has led a, re a series of recent litigation efforts to restore the values and the principles of the U.S. Constitution through the repeal of the insular cases. Um, and I'm going to move us here to the series of cases that Neil Ware and the Constitutional Accountability Center, um, well, Neil Ware and I should say um, two former organizations that um, he's been part of and co-founded, which is We the People and Equally American. So as Ware's organization, most recent organization, Equally American Campaigns, whether one lives in a state or territory, our basic rights as citizens should be the same. And in my work, I explore these competing frameworks around the geographies of U.S. imperialism through territorial law, through the 2016 the United States case, birthright citizenship case, um, which is an exemplary study of the limitation of civil rights discourses, indigenous rights, and historical amnesia and in the um <clears throat> so in the descent of the infamous downs v bidwell case one of the insular cases fuller clarified that a main assertion of this law the 1901 law was that if a place were acquired by the united states that congress quote quote congress has the power to keep it like a disembodied shade in an intermediate state of ambiguous existence for an indefinite period of time End quote. So I am looking at how citizenship in the U.S. has a long history of exclusion. And as a result, you know, these range of liminal statuses that are considered partial or becoming, or as John Oliver cheekily jests in that episode, um, off-brand citizenship, right? And um, belying that civil rights Framework is a teleological notion of progress that eventually these communities will attain full citizenship, or that is indeed the aspiration. And it is an unquestioned premise for them that the quote unquote four million unrepresented people living in the territories desire what they don't already possess, which is full U.S. citizenship and enfranchisement. Um, and so what I'm interested in and what I do in in my work is kind of connect these meanings around um, the shade or shades of empire within Fuller's descent to the Down v. Bidwell case and the insular cases to a form of racialized haunting and thinking about this, um, um, the, the limitations here between um, inclusion and the desire for inclusion as well as 
um, you know, indigenous rights. So the limits of a civil rights framework within the case study of American Samoa, but also many of the other U.S. territorial cases. Um, so even though you have people like um, Tuawa and the many other plaintiffs that were part of that case, as well as Fiti Samanu, which is the latest iteration of that case, um, <clears throat> Uh, the American Samoa government, as well as representative in Congress, have spoken out against this case um, because of its infringement on Samoan sovereignty, on Samoan governance, and also um, um, and and so forth. And so the the framing of this movement, though, is I think connected to how we think about tins because um, it sort of bridges both liberal and conservative approaches and rhetorics around multiculturalism and inclusion, um, as well as patriotism, right? So for many people, they, you know, their thoughts are, well, if they're um, within the United States, then they should be granted U.S. citizenship, and this is what everyone desires, right? Um, when in fact, someone's strategically draw on this very racist ruling, the 1901 insular cases, to um, create distance and to assert their own sovereignty over their lands, over um, their own forms of citizenship within the, you know, complicated matrix that is, um, you know, this the ambiguity or the liminality of territoryhood. Um, and so that's just a small snapshot of, of where my work is and how I'm thinking about these connections to Tim's and these um, notions around racial progress and the civil rights rhetoric and, and the limitations of that. Um, and um, there's more that we could talk about, too, in terms of, you know, the racial rhetorics of the case law and, and that sort of thing. But in the interest of time, I'm not really going to go there. Um, I will, I do want to make two connections before I stop. And one is to um, Miley Arvin's work, um, um, in particular, her book, Possessing Polynesians, of which there's an excellent book review as part of this special issue, um, in which she's talking about um, the colonial racial logics of whiteness and um, the racialization of Pacific Islanders in particular that I think has a, a really interesting connection to these con um, conversations around whiteness and Aryanness and that just colonial discourse of Aryanness um that has traveled across empires, you know, across British to US, um, for instance. Um, <clears throat> and then the other connection that I want to make that we can probably pick up in QA is the complicated figure and legacy of Tulsi Gabbard, who is the first Hindu representative in Congress, but also Samoan from Hawaii. <laughs> and um part of these really complicated politics again um, you know, uh, a really interesting case study in how we think about representative politics um, and also of that convergence of both conservative and liberal discourses of multiculturalism, um, both in these cases, but also in larger politics. And I'm thinking here of the excellent, the amazing intro that Linda and Sonia offered um, in terms of, you know, the, um, the gestures around Kamala Harris and how we understand her um, in this moment as well. Thank you so much. Um, we're going to pass it to Mizue. 
Thank you so much. Thank you, Kiri, for your presentation and for all your very thoughtful acknowledgements up top, um, both of um, Linda and Sonia, but also a recognition of the moment that we're in um, and how we are holding many heavy thoughts and care in our hearts. Um, again, my name is Mizue. I am an organizer. I um, am intimidated by scholars, but here I am. Um, for the past 20 years, I've organized um, uh, at the intersection, as Linda mentioned at the beginning of the criminal, legal, and immigration systems. But what, more than just two decades, what it really was, was a time where we had experienced an unprecedented growth of what I call the homeland security state, um, really the evolution of the most world's largest system to um, identify, track, police, deport, exclude, imprison people um, at the world. And one which, is, you know, the U.S. doesn't hold this as a unique characteristic of its governance regime. It's the U.S., the European Union, Australia, um, but increasingly a system of control that's come to define many ways in which uh, countries govern, uh, wealthy countries govern, globally. And so my work has been focused on combating hierarchies of belonging very much um, at this intersection of criminalization, the criminal legal and immigration systems. And it's this work is very much grounded in the histories that are represented in um, the collection of articles in this excellent journal. So um, and my work is currently focused on how surveillance fuels state um, state violence and corporate power, um, including the expansion of border regimes uh, deep into the interior of countries, very much on the international boundary lines and globally into other territories. And of course, um, as the journal notes, and as Kiri mentioned, these are legacies of empire. These are not new systems, even though the technology is new, um, they very much reinforce existing continuums of control. Um, but so this is who I am. This is what I do. And so I'm going to just talk a little bit about how these things come together for me and how they relate to the topics in the journal. Um, so if we're trying to understand the growth of the homeland security state, I didn't turn on my timer, so I'm going to try to turn on. Um, you know, it's due in, in part uh, due to the combination of many factors. One of them are very um, harsh immigration laws, which really kind of became maximally bad in 1996, I guess, um, after kind of a decades of increasingly becoming more restrictive. Um, and then um, part of what these laws did is they made domestic policing effectively a pipeline for deportation. So merging the carceral system with the immigration system much more clearly, but um, automatically through technology. And then, of course, as we can see, increased funding for border policing and severely limiting pathways to legal status. And so, um, you know, and when we say that severely limiting, it's just important to hold that for people in the United States who don't have authorization, there has not been a way for many millions and millions of people to regularize that status for um, over about over 35 years. So then what happens when you combine this legal infrastructure with a political will that's racist, xenophobic, and very, um, what's the word, virulent, mean, um, with funding, right? So that's what DHS represents to us in 2002. 
Um, on top of these immigration laws, the U.S. expanded its budget tremendously for migration policing, a 2,000% increase currently since 1990. Um, and with that money and this political will and the legal infrastructure, they were able to deport over 6 million people in about 20 years, which um, is unprecedented historically. But it's also become a like a permanent part, a perpetual part of U.S. governance, right? policing and deportation. And that is um, that formally it was episodic. Now it seems like it's a it's a permanent part of their system until we break it down. Um, and then also just in terms of thinking about the money and resources spent on this um, in the name of Homeland Security, the U.S. spends about like 25 billion a year to police migrants. That's more than the military spending of many countries, including Canada, Turkey and at the time of this statistic, Israel. Um, but also the political momentum, um, you know, I think it's this idea that uh, the journal highlights in terms of hierarchical belongings based on racial categories that we can see how now um, racialized proxies have become the named targets, right? So criminal aliens, um, illegal border crossers, terrorists, and it just represents a the continuum of the ongoing project of nation building that requires the constant articulation of who belongs, who's granted rights, and who doesn't deserve any. Um, you know, just in terms of the global expansion of the U.S. border regime, I like to use this quote that was um, in the 9-11 Commission, which was which said very um, blatantly or forcefully, the American homeland is our planet. And I think for many of us who've organized around these issues in this in the United States, you know, um, we we didn't have the I don't think I didn't the awareness of how much the system has actually grown. Um, obviously, it's like I said, everything's a continuum, but exploded after DHS in terms of a U.S. border externalization regime, where to the point where now Mexico has one of the world's largest detention capacities in the world um, on behalf of the United States, and also deports more people um, to Central America every year consistently than the United States does, right? And then there's the technology that accompanies this. Um, there's a shared police training, massive collection of biometrics and personal information, police criminal history data sharing uh, globally across borders. And, um, you know, I think this point around um, technology and surveillance, I just wanted to talk a little bit more about that as I wrap up my points. So I think people are aware that there's a lot of talk about a global focus on um, AI, artificial intelligence policy. Both the EU and the United States um, have created frameworks on how to address these issues. And, you know, one of the things um, that is a hallmark of kind of the immigration control regime since the beginning of time is this idea, I think, of legibility and visibility, right? People having to register the Alien Registration Act or, you know, Chinese um, immigrants having to have their photo taken, right, to to be able and to be able to prove um, that. So all this to think about how the importance of legibility and visibility in terms of regimes of control, you know, when the U.S. occupied Afghanistan after 9-11, identity dominance, I don't know if people have heard this term, but that was part of their idea on how they were going to conquer, right, is that we have to know who every single person is. The Department of Defense created a massive catalog of 
civilian, they would go up to civilians on the street, gather irises, fingerprints, and put it into a database, right? And so just to think of this idea of identity dominance as being something that animates every department now of the United States, Department of State, Department of Justice, historically, but also the Department of Homeland Security, that's building, you know, one of the world's most massive collection of databases populated with um, by the UN, right, the refugees, iris scans, um, by policing agencies, you know, through every system in which biometrics and information is collected, they're amassing it. And, um, you know, bringing it back to the, the topic of the issue, just seeing how easily this, um, the issue of immigration laws are weaponized then in this case at this convergence of kind of surveillance technology, um, legibility and um, all that stuff. So on the issue of denaturalization um, under Trump, we saw that they um, had an operation to basically try to, you know, scan every single um, natural person who was naturalized to identify people that they could deport, right? So this was discovered through a Freedom of Information Act request by act, uh, advocates. And they found out that the U.S., um, CIS was using software to scan the records of millions of immigrants um, to try to flag people um, powered by Amazon Web Services. You know, it initially flagged, I think, 120,000 cases of people that they tried to deport as potential threats to national security and public safety. And, you know, just to think about um, just the weaponization of, of these laws and what these laws were intended to do. Um, I just think it's very, it's a cautionary tale, right? Under Trump, the extreme uh, politicization of, of the immigration system built on um, the extreme politicization of it under Obama, right? Where it became the, you know, people with criminal convictions were the target and then Bush before him, where, you know, people, Muslims were the target, all of this coming together under Trump and uh, with the threat of reviewing, you know, continually reviewing it and denaturalizing people. Um, you know, this is the context in which we ended are organizing under the Trump administration into Biden. And, you know, the ideas that animate the system and the laws that, that exist to um, enforce it maximally still persist. And I just wanted to end on the point of why borders, right? Borders serve to maintain an unequal world order. You know, the biggest predictor of who builds the walls and who, um, where the walls are is the wealth gap between the country building them and the people that they're trying to keep out. And as we know, uh, global inequality continues to grow, but the solution continues to be to police more the borders more and more heavily at the cost of thousands of lives um, a year. And so, you know, just as laws conceal the violence of empire, conceal conceal it and reproduce it. Um, I just wanted to end on this point that technologies do the same. You know, I, I refer to the AI regulations that the U.S. and the EU are considering, and both of them carve out from protections of these laws, um, migrants, people on the move um, without authorization as not being worthy of being protected under these AI regulations. And, um, you know, I think just as we have to overturn um you know, we just have to think about the role of 
of ending these pernicious technologies as we overturn the ideas and practices that reinforces the hierarchies and fuel the powers invested in maintaining them. Thank you. Um, we can turn to Prachi. Thank you so much. Um, that was really wonderful. Um, again, thank you, Linda and Sonia, for having this conversation and great to be uh, in, in this conversation with you, uh, Kiri and Mizu. Um, and uh, nice to see some folks on the uh, uh, Zoom call here. Um, yeah, I think um, I'm going to, I was thinking about whether how much to focus on kind of the historical context and how much to focus on the current one. I think I'm going to start with focusing mostly on the historical context and then uh, and then maybe in the Q&A, we can talk a little bit about the the current context of caste and Hinduism and Hindutva and Hindu nationalism, India, what is India, what is uh, what what they're telling and what India is to us now. All of those contexts are, are, ma are really matter today. Um, you know, Thin Duque's really provided, you know, talking about this question of Aryan, what is the Aryan race? Uh, what is the high caste Hindu? Who's of Indian blood? All these questions, you know, and then we're talking about and, and thinking about that case today, you know, highlighting what Sonia and Linda did in, in the in the opening about what is the you know racial progress of those those people from that time to today is a question of like who's the racial progress for? And that you know that's a question that looms large today too. Um, and to understand all these uh, realities of uh, uh, that are inherent in the argument that Tind uh, was making on his behalf, um, there is a lot of beliefs and questions that are still uh, that come to us today. Right? What is Hinduism itself? How how has it always existed as a religion? Um, are upper caste Hindus Aryans? How did where did that even come from? Um, what is caste and how how is it connected to Hinduism? Um, was it a, a colonial creation? Um, and then what is Indian and does it equal Hindus, Hindus or Hinduism? These are the questions that are, um, that were questions in the early 1900s when Tin was making the case. And these are questions at the heart of what we, what our struggles are today in the early 2000s, almost 100 years later. Um, and caste was not always a social reality, right? It, and it came to existence uh, thousands of years ago in the middle me, me, middle of like uh, the first millennium BC, and it was created by something called Brahmanism. So it created it was created by Brahmanism. It was a, which is spiritual philosophy. So, it, so it, from the beginning had religious sanction. Um, and Dr. Ambedkar, who is the uh, uh, the famous Dalit leader and the the draft uh, of the uh, Indian Constitution, he called caste a graded hierarchy, a graded hierarchy with a descending scale of contempt, um, in which people are assigned by birth uh, to a group that is typically has a specific job. And so he said it was a, 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 a graded division of laborers and labor and caste and labor and class. These are intrinsically connected from the beginning and the beginning of the creation of what caste is. And caste is always pervaded by notion of purity and pollution. So whoever is the highest caste is most pure because they're doing certain kind of intellectual, certain kind of labor that is supposed to be divine, defined by birth to be pure. Um, and the most lowest caste or even the people who are outcasts, which Dalits are, are supposed to create and do uh, labor that is polluting and therefore they are untouchables, right? So this was ordained by religion and central to the functioning was controlling it through uh, women's sexuality because it was controlling it through marriages, controlling it through endogamy. 
Um, so these things are uh, the the controlling of sexuality and controlling it through uh, mental and manual labor has been always crucial to uh, and to what caste has be become and caste continues to be. Um, and caste always breeds separation and it breeds superiority, right? The survival of the caste system is maintained through that hierarchy and maintained through superior superiority. So every caste, almost all castes have somebody below them. And to in order for them, for each caste to maintain their superiority, they have to say caste has to exist because then how are they going to oppress the caste below them, except for Dalits who can't. Um, so this is the way that the, the system of caste has maintained itself. Uh, in terms of Hinduism um, and what that is, I, you'll notice I haven't really talked about what Hinduism is because Brahmanism is what really became dominated as Hinduism. It, it never, never really existed as a religion. Um, and the word was not used to designate a religion in India until the colonial rule. So there you go. That's, that's where colonization comes in. Not not that colonial people did not create, the British did not create the caste system, but they did um, participate in creating what was what we know as Hinduism today. Um, and Hindu really derives from the what, river Indus. Um, people in India used to call it Sindh, people in South Asia, the subcontinent. And then some people in, who are other side of that river couldn't pronounce the S, so they started calling it Hindu. And that, that area became Hindu. Uh, Hindu area. And so anybody who living in that area was called Hindus, including Muslims. And then colonialism brought some challenges and they, the British came into that time and they said, oh, we want to impose some taxes on these people. What are we going to, what are we going to do? We need to create some laws. So they created laws based on the so-called local customs and the local customs. Who did they get those from? They work with the Brahmins. They worked with the Brahmins to create the local custom based on Brahmin, uh, the idea of Brahmin advisors who, who, who told them that this is, these are the texts. This is the Manusruti, which is the text, another text. And they said, this is our local laws, which are really casteist. And this is the, this is the laws that you should abide by. And so they created two systems of law, Muslim law and the Hindu law. And who are Hindus? Everybody else that is Hindus that is all from different caste system. Um, and you just have to, British had to agree to that, right? Because it was promoted as we are all in, in Hindus equally within this. There's no such thing as discrimination. This is this is our law, and this is what still is something that is Hindu uh, nationalists are still promoting when they're opposing the caste system. They're saying by by asking for caste protections, you're saying it's Hindu phobic because you are you are saying that this caste discrimination which doesn't exist. We just live in different kinds of groups equally. And this is a multicultural framework rather than saying that there's a, this caste discrimination that exists. And this ideology comes from the time before colonialism. During colonialism, it was entrenched by British and it exists till today. Um, and this is the Hindu nationalists are continuing to maintain it and maintain this kind of ideology. So where did Aryans come from? What's the Aryan connection here? The Brahmin elite and the Hindu, Hindu nationalist elite at the time promoted um, in you know early times promoted this many theories in India, referring to people coming from India, uh, coming to India from the outside. So the Aryans came to India and the Aryans was uh, uh, Aryans were the Hindu, um, the highest caste Brahmin elite. Right. So these these are the people that came and they they created this golden age 
of civilization and brought that civilization to India. Um, and this Brahmin and Dominant Kassali uh, stopped using this interpretation of Aryans and non, uh, uh, in the 1930s, around the same time, or a little bit after Thindar was arguing his case. And the reason that they stopped using this is because there were there was a strong non-Aryan, non-Brahmin movement of Dalit and the oppressed caste communities at the time that was opposing and saying, okay, if you're saying you're Aryans and you're coming from the outside, then we're the indigenous people. So you should leave because we're the indigenous people and we're non-Aryans, we're Dravidians, and this is actually our land. And so that's the time when that movement started gaining power and you know, popularity among the people, among the Bahujan, which is the all, all caste that's not Brahmin caste. It gained popularity among those people. The Brahmins start stop using that term, and it's been also the Aryan conquest theory has also been uh, proved as not necessarily standing ground on many levels and by historians. But um, in some ways, parts of the, that theory continued. There were, uh, you know, uh, popular favorites like Vivekananda, who was the Hindu nationalist favorite, um, used this term. He he brought it to uh, even. United States and California and Chicago, when he spoke, he talked about the Aryan future and in, 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 in that, that was grounded in kind of, you know, uh, that Aryans being the Brahmin descendants and that we are this kind of racial superior uh, people that is connected to all the racial superior people across the, the world. And so that theory, that notion, that ideology of superiority of uh, among the Brahmin community and the upper caste community has, main, has been there since thousands of years through the colonialism till now, and that remains. The reason that non, the Aryan and non-Aryan movement is, is important to think about and, and study is because, like I said, the non-Aryan movement, um, was, which was led by um, people like Jyoti Bafule, who was a pioneer uh, in, in, this, in this struggle. He came from the flowering caste, the caste of flower, you know, creating gar the gardener caste. Um, he was a pioneer in the 1800s, and he promoted this, um, you know, if the if the Brahmins created the mythology of uh, being Aryans, then then he promoted the, you know, counter mythology of what I talked about is the non, th that we are the non-Aryans, we're the Dravidians, and that he, he popularized that tradition. Um, he wrote a, a book called Gulamgiri, which is slavery, um, uh, which it, this is the, this is a book in which he turned the theory upside down. And even in that book, the first book, part of that book is dedicated to the good people of the United States who are fighting slavery. So he was already making those connections uh, to people uh, struggling against uh, racism and, and racial domination in the United States. So even that struggle and the connection to that struggle is goes back to the uh, that time period um, and, and that struggle continues today. Um, and so he, he fully really put forward this united vision of the liberation, um, of what he called the three shudra and atishudras, which is women, lower caste, and Dalits. So bringing them all together, saying that these are all communities that are oppressed by what he called, what, what is now being called Brahminical patriarchy, the dominance of Brahmins, which is connected to and very much intrinsic to patriarchy, which is not, cannot be disconnected from that. These people need to unite together and oppose it. And that is the movement. That is a non-Brahmin Dalit movement that continues to exist as part of both the Indian and South Asian communities and the culture. And that has been brought to United States 
through the struggle of, uh, on caste annihilation today. So today, as Dalit Americans across the country and anti-caste people who are joining the Dalit Americans across the country to fight for caste protection um, for oppressed caste within uh, city policies and, and state policies, the biggest people who are opposing them are not white people. The biggest people that are opposing them are Hindu nationalists who are saying that by putting these laws into place, you are creating Hindu phobia and you're promoting Hindu phobia. And so this is a term that is promoted because, um, you know, Hindu phobia is not really a, a, a structural reality, right? There's anti-Semitism is a structural reality. Anti-Black racism is a structural reality. Islamophobia is a structural reality. Anti-Hindu bigotry exists in the form of xenophobia and anti-immigrant sentiment, but Hindu phobia or Hindu uh, Hindu phobia is not necessarily the structural form that exists in the United States, but Hindu um, uh, nationalists are using this term to weaponize against anybody who brings it up caste discrimination, anybody who brings up Islamophobia, uh, uh, and they're you're using it to um, intervene uh, so that they can uh, really shield the the Hindu uh, Hindu fundamentalist ideologies, the Modi government from criticism. And, and really wield it as a reactionary weapon against progressive measures that are being proposed by these movements. And so th this is kind of the going back to kind of, you know, from when we come from the time of the thinned when, when somebody's arguing to be white and, and be adjacent to whiteness by saying that we're actually not uh, we're not actually not dominant caste and being Hindu upper caste means whiteness is no different than how uh, from what white na Hindu nationalists are saying because they are very much in line with the similar ideology of white supremacy today. So um, yeah, I mean, there's so many things to talk about, but those are the kind of points that I've been wanting to make. And then we can talk a little bit maybe in the question and answer about how um, we can oppose this and how it connects to uh, more of some of the questions that are coming up for people about what Hindu nationalist movement is doing and what um, the the uh, movement to oppose Hindu nationalism and white nationalism in the United States can can do and should be doing here. Thanks, Prachi. Um, thanks to all of our speakers, actually, for very rich and, um, you know, like in different ways, building on topics from the issue and then also from the case, which we can go into more if people have questions about that. Oh, sorry. Um, we wanted to give some time for the speakers if you have questions or comments to each other, because in our minds, like the work you're, you know, like the work that each of you do, we're like, yes, it's connected. That's why we asked you to speak. Um, but we wanted to offer you that opportunity also if you have connections or comments or anything of that sort. Um, we set aside some time. I had a question for Prachias, and I just kind of wanted to hear you continue to, to talk about, <laughs> to continue your discussion on, on Hindu nationalism and Hindu phobia and, and what that movement looks like now, you know, um, in the U.S. So, and thank you so much for that really incredible and rich um, uh, history of, of the terms. It's so important. Um, so, yeah. Um, thank you for that question. I feel like I went very fast. <laughs> I was trying to stay within the 10 minutes. Um, but yeah, I think it's a, it's a, 
you know, speaking of what is happening in the world today, and as we're facing kind of more Carthism, uh and, you know, uh, when we uh, oppose, when we're raising our voices against uh, different things that are happening in, in, in Palestine, of course, genocidal, uh, genocide happening there, any criticism is kind of uh, turned into a conversation about anti-Semitism, right? So, this is a question that I'm thinking about also when I'm thinking about when you when you when Hindu phobia is weaponized and and that gets popularized popularized as a term. What will happen in the future as uh, people uh, who are in power in India are calling for genocide of Muslims? Um, they're calling for genocide of Muslims in India while they are uh, promoting uh, the idea of the whole country that that equates in, uh, itself as a Hindu uh, nation. Um, and that ideology holds, uh, uh, you know, sway in among the Hindu nationalists who are promoting a similar kind of, uh, the same, same, same ideology in the United States, right? And so uh, when Hindu phobia is weaponized, Hindu phobia is put forward and that gains momentum, when Dalit Americans and anti-caste people and Muslim Americans of Indian descent are in a creating messages to oppose this, Hindu phobia can be popularized as a term and it can be very dangerous for people who are opposing this. And this is something that we really, really need to think about. Um, so that's just one thing in terms of like thinking about the current moment and, uh, uh, you know, as we kind of support the people who are resisting that now and think about thinking about the current issue now, but also thinking about how it connects to all of our work uh, today. So um, that's one thing I was thinking about too, but it's, it's a, it's a big, uh, you know, the Hindu nationalist movement is like the oldest, you know, fascist, like they're the oldest fascist organization that still concurrently exists. Right. Right. Like it, it was created a uh, hundred years ago or something and that organization, our Sangha, which was that organization that was created, it still exists today. It, they still have members today, and they're they have counterparts in the United States through Vishwa Hindu Parishad of America, um, and that Vishwa Hindu Parishad of America has a pact uh, called the Hindu Pact that is a five hundred one four that is still promoting. To make sure they're 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 reaching out to the people on the hill to ensure that their ideologies gain traction and that there's no opposition to whatever they're doing in the future. So that is a huge thing that is happening and that needs to be stopped. I have a question um, for either of you or both of you, and it's not a well-formed question. It's just something I think about. You know, when we think about um, the function of of immigration policing, bordering, and its ties of course, to racial capitalism and obviously othering hierarchies as being essential for um, capitalism. I'm just curious in terms of your reflection of in this current moment of how you are looking at these questions of hierarchy and nationalism or um, racialization as being related to neoliberalism or whatever economic order. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm also just thinking about... Uh... In the some of what you were saying, uh, Mizu, also around the laws that are created to um, uh, oppress 
communities by, uh, you know, governments and how those are popularized also in different parts of the world, right? You're talking about, you know, Mexico, which is adjacent and is supporting the U.S., um, the 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 U the U.S. you know uh, immigration system and and that repression, but also there are similar laws that are created in countries like Myanmar, uh, in in India too that are opposing certain that are leaving out certain ethnic religious minorities, right? So uh, Myanmar has done that with the Rohingya community, um, and that's also connected to genocide. Um, and then uh, India also used similar kind of uh, laws and or prom is, is, has uh, uh, at least promoted and uh, created laws, uh, wh whether implementing it or not is, is a challenge, but they have created laws that are similar to what U.S. has promoted in terms of um, saying that uh, certain kind of religions are citizens of India and certain or certain people are not allowed if they're not citizens of India. So Muslims, uh, anybody else who is not Muslim can become uh, automatic citizens coming from the border uh, uh, adjacent to the, the country. And so just thinking about how in these times, uh, repressive laws are copied by governments across the world and, uh, um, and also how that connects to and and promoting the of that and allowing that to happen is also part of kind of the geopolitical uh understanding of like who 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 who's allowed which countries are allowed to kind of go forward with those kind of laws right india right now is very is a big importance of, to the united states so whatever they do uh, whatever the Indian government does, whatever the prime minister does and promotes, even even though there is human rights violation and grave concerns that in, even the U.S. watchdogs um, and U.S. and like government religious centers have said that the U.S. government won't say anything or do anything publicly about it because there are geopolitical concerns. So those are all part of the both geopolitical order and the economic order of the times that we live in today. Thanks. Prachi for for those incredible comments and then um also Mizue for your talk and also for this question. Um I think I'm thinking about this question around capitalism and hierarchy and neoliberal order in two parts. One part within the Pacific is to think about the Pacific um securitization of the region and um to think about um you know, this is where the U.S. military, uh, <laughs> um, this is one of the most militarized areas for the U.S. empire, right? And so we're often thinking about borders between the Canada border sometimes, but also the U.S.-Mexico border. But the other big borders is the ocean, the Pacific, right? Um, and I think about that a lot in the work that I do, um, in particular because of, you know, Samoa is... Um, not many people are aware, unless you've, you know, looked at Samoa on a map, but, um, or been around other Samoans, but the, the U.S. border runs right through the islands. So you have independent Samoa, and then you have the territory of American Samoa. And so we think a lot about borders because people have to go back and forth, or people do go back and forth. And it used to be a lot easier prior to 9-11 for people to move back and forth between the islands. And now, um, and as a subsequent, you know, impact of, you know, increase as you as you have so eloquently elucidated and mapped for us, like the increase 
of the border regime and control and technologies, um, it's become very, much harder for people to move back and forth. Um, <clears throat> and I'm thinking about this too in terms of, um, uh, you know, the the Trans-Pacific Trade Agreement, which didn't really go through, but it's still kind of working in this kind of shadow formation um, around, um, you know, major um, countries um, and capital in Asia and Australia and New Zealand and their partnerships, the U.S., United States, and the ways in which um, in terms of um, refugee um, movements, as well as deportations, the Pacific Islands also often becomes like a sort of container for people, that liminal space for people to move. For Australians, also for into the U.S., um, you know, that sort of um, kind of configuration of security um, and that zone, um, which um, <clears throat> and how we how we conceptualize that. And so I'm thinking about the impacts of militarism, as well as the impacts of these huge major flows of capital and how they rework um, movements um, and power within the you know, Pacific region. You know, and as I said earlier, as how it's been remapped no longer as the Pacific Command, the oldest military command in the United States, but as the Indo-Pacific Command, right? And what they're envisioning is the future um, for military buildup not just across the Pacific, but into Asia and as that launching point to the Middle East and to other parts of the world, right? Um, and that heavy buildup in sites like Okinawa, Guam, um, and then also um, the sort of grip that it has um, in particular in Hawaii as well. Um, and then I'm also thinking about the flip side. And this is where I think I'm thinking about this in terms of you know, the couple of case, citizenship cases that we've been, I've been thinking through, um, and that is the ways in which um, we're contending within the Pacific community about our complicitness within militarism, right? So the high rates of enlistment um, and these high rates of enlistment, military enlistment, go hand in hand with training and policing and movements towards policing. And in particular, the deployment of soldiers who were once deployed to Kuwait and Afghanistan in um, the you know, early 2000s, post the 9-11 moment um, during the Iraq war, were then redeployed along the US-Mexico border. And then also their um, partnerships with the IDF, right? And so, you know, you have all of these sort of complicated ways in which we also have to deal with our complicitness um, because of um, these constrained opportunities that were created by, you know, colonialism. So like constrained um, opportunities for, you know, for other types of work um, where the largest recruitment station in the U.S. is in the Pacific. There, there it's in Samoa and it's also in Guam. <laughs> so there's this, um, those are the ways that we think about it in terms of like both, there's a structural um, sense of constraint, but then there's also, um, the ways that we're having to kind of think about um, our relationships to other people around the world. Um, and, you know, um, you know, another example of this is how um, Pacific people have been also thinking about the recent vote <laughs> within the United Nations and the resolution on Gaza and how many Pacific nations voted against the, the ceasefire. And so there's that 
also um, these major conversations happening in the Pacific, both in terms of these long histories of alliance um, with Palestinian people and, and other oppressed people around the world, but also of um, the way that our um, the constraints of capital as well as of colonialism um, within this kind of these multi, multi, multiple and overlapping empires in the region. Um, and yeah, so I, I had a question for you, Mizue, as well. And that was to think about this, this ish, this, um, I was wondering, um, cause you had talked about, you know, the ways in which empires concealed often through law and also through technology. And I was wondering in, in your work, how that, um, <clears throat> you talked a lot about biometrics, um, and identity dominance, identity dominance. And I was, I was wondering, um, to, to, um, how does this work in terms of how, how do you all reimagine the geography of U.S. border patrol and also U.S. empire, I guess, through your work around surveillance? Um, and so I'm, in particular, I'm wondering here, like, um, uh, you know, given that um, the military's, you were making these gestures to the global. And so I guess I just wanted to hear more about that. It's mainly that. <laughs> That's a great question, but I want to make sure I understand it correctly. Not reimagine like in an ab and like kind of an abolitionist sense, but how are, how is it actually happening? Yes. You know, I was thinking as you were talking about the military bases and kind of um, U.S. empire and surveillance, like how the Philippines often also like prior right to DHS founding, like that's where the, the surveillance and policing techniques were um, evolved and tested. But I think, you know, clearly um, to this point, always of how we are seeing kind of this historical continuum, right? whether it's even pre pre-colonial times as you know Prachi brought up but it's like how do we grapple with um these very entrenched systems of control and so to your question what um one of my current projects is is called the everywhere border it's a collaboration with a group in Mexico called R3D and um, ILIT at Temple University. And what we're trying to do is map out what we call these digital infrastructures of control, but digital infra infrastructures which are laden with political agendas, right? So if you're looking at, say, for example, Latin America and the Caribbean and the U.S. history of intervention there, you have every single department that's involved there, right? The Department of Defense, obviously, in the military bases, the Department of State around the drug war, and then also with the DOJ, and then you have DHS, and then every single thing that is used as a way like, oh, well, the U.S. is concerned about drug trafficking, right? Let's change the institutions then in um, Mexico and other countries so then they can prosecute along the lines of how um, we would like to shape those regimes. And then let's also foster a climate that's positive for corporations at the same time that we're implementing our systems of policing. And all this to say that I'm trying to make a very condensed point around how what I think is accelerating at this moment with the advent of the securitization regime and kind of digital technologies is a merger 
of all these different agendas that like a flip can almost be switched at any single time, right? So you can have like, you know, people detained at military bases in Guatemala, say, right? When they wanted to hold a whole lot of people and we'll, we'll tie our U.S. funding, you know, to that, you, you're you going to get U.S. funding if you police your borders for us. And then if you um, increase your police force in this way. And, um, you know, I think the legacies of a lot of these different initiatives around policing of problems that the U.S. has fostered, right? The drug war, the gang war. Um, it's all happening at a rapid pace with, I feel like maybe, an, this might be slight overstatement, but I'm just going to say it anyway, a convergence of agend agendas, right? Under this like paradigm of or uh, regime of securitization, where more policing and more punishment becomes a solution to everything. And so I think it's scary times, right? I think what's happening right now um, in Gaza and kind of this idea of like, you have all the powers that are invested in surveillance states now feeling like, well, we now have legitimacy to like ramp it up in this context of um, AI policies that are being dictated by the handful of very, very wealthy companies. They're, they're richer than a lot of nations, these companies, right? Dictating that, and what are the regulations of these going to be when their money is made by extracting as much information to sell to police, to sell to different corporations, to use for themselves, to create new products? It's a real challenge, I think, um, the convergence of, you know, in this very particular way, the surveillance industrial complex um, and, you know, how just the money flows, research institutions, funding then, you know, DHS initiatives and and police training. So I wasn't a very articulate point, but I think it's exactly the thing that, you know, you're naming is we and, you know, as people organizing to change these things, we have to understand these so much better. Right. I mean, all the like, thank you so much, Linda and Sonia, for bringing us together, because I feel very um, animated in terms of thinking through kind of the um, the synergy and the connectivity of these kind of different approaches to looking at the histories into this current moment. But, you know, authoritarianism in its many forms, democracy masquerading at authoritarianism masquerading as democracy, straight up authoritarianism, right, that has like basically a stronghold because it has a geopolitical importance to the United States. And I think really um, a way in which the solutions are getting more and more narrowly defined where and the narratives are getting more and more controlled. This is the thing that um, is just bubbling up for me a lot. So I'll just end my rambling there. But thank you for that question and for your work. So there is one question in the chat, and I think that is for um, Prachi. Do you think you can speak more about the Muslim genocide going on in India? Um, so there is a, yeah, I mean, what what to say about this in, <laughs> in a few words, but I think it's such a a long history of it, and uh, I think we have to really think about it in the context of the fact that uh, the prime minister, current prime minister uh, of India, presided over a pogrom um, in in the early two thousands, um, and um, when he was chief minister of a, a state um, in India, um, and that has it has been what. Um, 20 years since that time. 
Um, and and just a few years after, um, he became the prime minister. And since he became the prime minister, um, and even as as he was, you know, uh, in campaigning for becoming a prime minister, even before that, you know, people in the U.S. had actually mobilized to make sure that uh, when he did visit or was trying to visit the United States, that um, he would be banned, that his, he was, his visa was banned uh, from, so he was banned from coming into the United States because of what happened in uh, in Gujarat uh, in the early 2000s. And so this person who was banned from coming to the United States just spoke uh, in June 2003, uh, 2023, um, at the, and gave a, gave a speech at the joint session of Congress, um, invited by the, one of the most progressive uh, House speakers, uh, House uh, House representatives um, in in the U.S. and so uh, an Indian House rep, uh, representatives in the U.S. So it is a, a topsy turvy world that we're living in, right? The, even we're talking about Gaza and what's happening there, um, because uh, somebody who presided over a program came to power, there has been emboldening of uh, you know not just the you know, people in government and different levels of government who are speaking and and giving calls to genocide of Muslims openly. Um, so not just people who are the chief ministers and other ministers who are saying that, but there are other people who are godmen, uh, Hindu, quote unquote Hindu godmen and others alike, who are openly giving calls and and openly saying, uh, you know, when Modi. Did the uh, was spoke for us when he's the chief minister? This is the this was the right thing to do, and this is be, it's because of that we're able to say and what we're able to do what we're able to do right now. And so this is openly being said. Um, and then when Trump visited uh, uh, India um, a, a month after he visited India, there was, was a pogrom in Delhi at the time, and so. Uh, there, there, it's the, this, what's happening in, in, in India and the genocidal violence, the calls to genocide, um, the laws that are, that are being proposed that, um, you know, criminalize, uh, you know, people who are opposing, uh, the government, uh, law, uh, and then people who are being political prisoners who are in jail, uh, not just Muslim, uh, political prisoners, not just people opposed um, things like the Citizenship Amendment Act, which is excluding Muslims from coming in uh, into the to the country. Um, there's people who also oppose uh, caste discrimination who are in in jail. So the the situation in India is of authoritarianism, is uh, is genocidal, it's it's fascist, and it is all consuming. Uh, in a way that is is really hard to oppose, right? And the media itself is being completely. If you imagine Fox News in in, in it's hard to really tell right now what other other MSNBC and other places too in terms of what what's the difference. But in general, Fox News is supposed to be the conservative right wing uh, media uh, place, but all of Indian media is like Fox News. The way that they talk, the the way that they support the government, way that they promote uh, genocidal conversations and talks, media is completely dominated by that. So just the young people and the society, it, it, it's it's very hard to tell, you know, what is actually, uh, you know, what we're actually able to do to uh, actually oppose this. 
even even while there are p- many people who are opposing this and are are getting arrested. So um, yeah, that's uh, there's a lot more to say, but that's what I'll kind of just say in terms of uh, there's not there are genocidal calls and there's pogroms happening. Genocide has not happened yet, but it could happen. I think we're going to close out. Um, and I think that, you know, just thinking about what Prachi was saying and what Kiri Mizue had said before, one of the, you know, like something that Sony and I would talk a lot about when we we're putting the issue together and before was just about like, what are the complications and complicities around kind of like, you know, like demands for inclusion in a nation state um, with its limitations and what it opens up. And that is one of the things that we thought the Tind case and other um, such cases really ask us as scholars and just people to question. And so um, thank you again to our speakers. And so if you look in the chat, there is another reminder that the issue is available online and right now it's open access. So um, a lot of the topics that came up are addressed in different ways in the issue itself. So thanks everyone for joining us and um, have a great week.